Open your Bibles to Psalm 58. This morning, Psalm 58, page 605, if you're using a Bible provided. How is a Christian supposed to respond to an enemy? What verses come to mind? How is a Christian supposed to respond to an enemy? Feed them. Plant a seed. The vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm asking a question that I'm not going to answer as much this morning as I am tonight. In preparing this, as the notes got longer and longer and longer, and I, for once, thought maybe I would be merciful unto you, a sinner, and... Uh, <laughs> So come back tonight. We will not be in Acts tonight. I'm going to spend a lot more time talking about some of the some of the concern with what I'm going to preach, or some of the pushback that might be there, especially from some of the verses that you're mentioning as Christians in the New Testament, and uh, Christians who are typically way more familiar with the New Testament and less familiar with the Old Testament. And so um, I don't know if that will make you want to come back tonight after you hear this morning's message, or make you want to stay home, so we'll see how that goes, but uh, we'll spend more time talking about it, answering questions, and dealing with uh, all of the scripture on this, but uh, the, the main verses, um, the main verse that, that, I, that came to my mind, I think it was in Matthew 5, I've got it in my notes for tonight, Matthew 5 is where it says, uh, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And that's typically where we go, but the question is, do you know what all of the Scripture says on this topic, not just certain parts and certain bits of it? And so we want to know what all the Scripture says, and today we're in the Old Testament, so we want to deal with what the Old Testament says on this topic of what do we do with our enemies. So before we dig into the text, let's pray together. Lord, open our ears and eyes as you have told us that you will reveal yourself to us as, as we ask, and so we have already sung that, that you would show us Christ. You would show us Christ from the Old Testament, not just the New, that we would see Christ in the Scripture before us, and that we would clearly, clearly understand what the Bible says and then how we are to apply it. And there's so much to know, Lord, but help us in this moment to learn what you have for us to speak through me, to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 58, follow along in your Bible as I read. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy... A mictum of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O oh God, Break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. 
Surely there's a God who judges on earth. This is God's divine revelation. May we listen to it this morning. This is another congregational psalm. This was given to the choir master. I just wonder if you were envisioning singing this out loud in a church service. Break the teeth of the wicked. Lord, may they dissolve like the slime, like the snail into slime. May they be like the stillborn child. I, this, this, is, this is not what we typically sing. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily a good thing or necessarily a bad thing. I think we have to understand all of God's revelation and apply it. But one of the things you'll recognize as you read through the Old Testament, there are things in our theology or things that show up in the Old Testament that we are not familiar with and also we don't know how to handle or how to deal with in light of New Covenant theology in the place that we are in as New Covenant believers. And so that's the challenge. When I said New Covenant theology, I did not mean the study of the, the, the realm of New Covenant versus Covenant theology. That's not my point. My point is the theology of the New Covenant. And so that's what I was trying to say. So in case you might be confused, if you don't have any idea what I'm saying, we'll move on. <laughs> this is a victim of David. This is another golden psalm. Psalm 56 and Psalm 57 that we've already studied recently are of the same kind. We're not sure what that means. I'm just trying to explain it. But it's according to do not destroy. There are four of these do not destroy psalms. Psalm 57, we saw that a couple weeks ago. The psalm we're in today, 58. Next week, Lord willing, Psalm 59, and then Psalm 75. So it is helpful to our understanding to have these three do not destroy psalms together in a row because they help us to, I believe, understand why they are thematic. They are dealing with the same theme, and they're given to us in not in chronological order, so two of the Psalms have the setting, Psalm 57 and Psalm 59. This Psalm, Psalm 58, does not have a setting. But if you look at Psalm 57 and Psalm 59, the setting of Psalm 59 is earlier than 57 in David's life. Yet it comes last in the Psalter. And I believe it's because God is laying out for us the chronological, not the chronological idea of when these songs are written, but the themes of what they mean and how we should understand them. So this, the theme of Psalm 57, as David looks at his enemy and how he responds to his enemy and does not destroy his enemy, King Saul, lays out for us a framework for 58 and 59 and what we read about how David responds to his enemy in these Psalms. We have to keep all of that together. So if you don't understand or haven't read or, or haven't looked at Psalm 57, listen to Psalm 58, go back and study Psalm 57, and then come back next week, we we'll do Psalm 59, and maybe in light of all of those, you'll get a full picture of what God is saying, at least a more full picture of what God is saying. And then come back tonight, and we'll deal with this topic more from the understanding of how this works with what the New Testament says, and how it works with some of the pushback from evangelical, even Reformed evangelicals today, in light of how we are to respond to our enemies. All right, there's a lot of intro here. Now, Psalm 58 is not like Psalm 57 in this sense. Psalm 58 is an imprecatory psalm. Have you heard of that term, imprecatory psalm? If not, you can write it down and look it up later. What this means is that a, this psalm is an imprecation. I didn't know what that meant, so I had to look that up. An imprecation is a curse. Oh, there are curses in the Bible. Yes, this is a cursing psalm. Not because it uses bad language or four-letter words, but because it is calling down a curse on the enemies of David. This is a psalm against his enemies. Now, what do we do with these psalms? I'll just take a drink while you think about that. 
Well, let me give you my answer, all right? You, see. <laughs> you can share with me your answer after the service if you'd like. First, we acknowledge that it isn't only the Old Testament saints, but also the New Testament saints, the New Covenant believers, Old Covenant believers. Both believers, both sets of believers throughout history have living enemies who are really trying to destroy them. It's not just David versus Saul, David versus Goliath, David versus the Philistines, David versus Absalom. It's also us today in our time now. We have enemies, real physical enemies, who are seeking to end our lives physically. And if that's not true for us sitting in this church building here today, it's definitely true for millions of Christians living around the world in places like China, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, India, Philippines, Nigeria, this is true. So we have to understand that it's not just David who had to fight a real physical Goliath or a go against his, a real physical enemy, Saul. We have these same people in our lives today, at least some of us do, or at least some of us do some of the time. So we must face the reality of our lives and look at our lives through the realistic lens of Scripture. The Psalms actually meet us where we live. They meet us where we live. They meet us with real people living real lives whose lives are at times under threat of being ended by an enemy. If you've ever faced that, the psalm speaks to you. If you've never faced that, be prepared. That might happen someday, so know where to go in the Scripture. The only reason that most of us haven't had to even think about this is because we've had the benefit of living in a Christian nation our entire lives. Now, what I mean by Christian nation is this, a nation founded on a biblical Christian worldview which is different than a nation founded on an Islamic worldview. So a Christian living in Iran, or a Christian living in a, in a world with a, um, I think it's, uh, is it Buddha, Buddhism in India? Or Hinduism, I forget which one is greater, Hinduism? A Hinduism, a Hinduistic worldview, or in the Philippines, an Islamic worldview, or these other places, such as China, an atheist communist worldview, living in these different places puts the Christians in those places in a different position. So Christians in this nation have had preferred status for a couple hundred years. And because of that, we have not had to face persecution, especially deadly persecution, hardly at all in any way, shape, or form. But that's not true for Christians down through the ages. Fox's Book of Martyrs, all these things. We've heard of some of those names of some of the Christian martyrs in times past. But it's also not true, as, as I said before, for millions, tens of millions of Christians around the world. In fact, we are in the minority so we have to understand the situation. We haven't had to face that in the past, but are we facing it today? And if we're not quite facing it today, will we be, unless God is merciful, facing it more in the future? We must be prepared for these kinds of situations. We've had the luxury in the Christian church in America of simply talking about spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. And those enemies are real, and they are spiritual, and, and those are things we need to know. But we've had the luxury of only having to deal with that category and not having to deal with very much physical enemies, real living enemies. But I believe that time has come to an end. I do believe it's come to an end already. Now, secondly, we must recognize that these psalms are applicable to our day. These are psalms to be prayed and psalms to be sung. This psalm. Pray it, sing it. I'll give my case maybe for it more tonight than even this morning. I'm just stating the truth. If you want to hear me defend it, you can come back tonight. <laughs> now, what I'm saying here is that in precatory psalms, this isn't the only psalm like this, they're not only for old covenant saints. 
Which means when we read through this psalm this morning, we study through it, we're not going to only do an academic dive as to what it meant for another kind of people at another time. We're going to look at it for what it means for us today. We're going to look at it through the lens of what it meant to the first recipients, the original hearers of it. We're going to understand it in David's context, but we're going to apply it to today because it's for us today as much as it was for them in those days. This is for us, our congregation, us now. And so we need to understand how that works, and we'll do it that, do with that today. So that's where we are. That's what I understand. So are you ready to dig in? Yes, enough intro. Let's get to it. First verses 1 through 5, the description of wicked rulers. The description of wicked rulers. When he gives this description of wicked rulers in verses 1 through 5, he begins by describing the conduct of these wicked rulers. He describes the conduct of these wicked rulers. The word gods in the ESV at the end of verse 1 could also be translated mighty lords. And I believe in the context it would be better to translate it mighty lords. It's lowercase g because it's referring to false gods, but I think it's lowercase g because the psalmist in his, um, in his poetic form is using the term gods for people who have a lot of power. He's not saying they're actually like a Zeus and, and uh, Hermes and all. He's not saying anything like that. He's just saying that these, these are rulers. And notice how he lays this out. They judge the children of men. They deal out violence on earth. So I see this as very human. And these mighty lords or these mighty rulers or these gods are human rulers. They are mighty people with great power. And to these gods, to these rulers... He asked a couple of questions. Do you decree what is right? Do you speak righteously? Do you judge injustice? Do you judge justly? And what's his answer? Verse two. He answers his own question. Those are the best questions. The answer's provided. No. No, they devise wrongs. They deal out violence on the earth. These rulers are planning wickedness they're planning injustice, and they're dealing out violence. These are wicked, unjust rulers who are violently implementing their will on the earth. This is a specific condemnation of a corrupt, tyrannical government. This is a specific condemnation of a corrupt, tyrannical government. This is what the psalm is about. It's about people living under corrupt tyrants. So what do the righteous do in the face of the actual physical violence of wicked, tyrannical rulers. Now, some of you might believe we've arrived at that point in our day, and others of you might not be quite so convinced, and so we might come to this a little bit differently with whether how much this applies to us right now. But whether it applies right now as much as it will apply in the future, be prepared. So this is the conduct of wicked rulers. Secondly, he describes the character of these wicked rulers. Starting in verse 3, he describes the character of these wicked rulers. From birth, the wicked are estranged from the womb. The wicked are these gods, these mighty rulers, these unjust, wicked tyrants. They have been estranged from God, which means they have turned away from God. They've been separated from God since birth. They've been on the wrong path. They go astray from birth. And they go astray, and they, they're on this wrong path because they are liars from the beginning. The picture is, they came out of the womb speaking lies. 
From the very beginning, these tyrants have been on the wrong path, headed the wrong way. They've always rebelled against God. They've never been in a relationship. They never appeared to be in a relationship. These people have been bad from the beginning. How bad? Well, what does this say? Verse 4. Well, they've been kind of a little bit bad. Or they are venomous serpents. And not only are they venomous serpents, not, they are venomous serpents, poisonous snakes, snakes that are uncontrollable. They're the deaf adder that stops. It, it's, like a, it's like a snake that put its fingers in its ears so it can't hear the sound of the snake charmer trying to control it. This is a poisonous snake that is uncontrolled, even by the charmers and enchanters of its day. This snake has no master. This snake will bite whoever, whenever, so stay out of its way. It's a mean snake. It's a deadly snake. That's the idea. Now, this means in application that words will be of no effect. If someone is deaf, if a creature is deaf, speaking to it has no effect. This is the poetic point. The proclamation of the truth, the prophetic warnings to this kind of ruler are pointless. Which that means is in the new covenant age, the preaching of the gospel has no effect and will have no effect because they're deaf. They're deaf to everything. Now I asked the question as I got to this point is how would David know that these mighty rulers are this deaf? What do you think? I believe he has tried to reason with these rulers rationally. I believe he's sought in the past to face these men with words alone. I believe he's tried to speak truth to them and proclaim what is right and get them to change their ways and respond differently. Now, who these men are actually are, or who he's alluding to, uh, isn't, isn't given clearly in the text. There's some ideas that commentators will have. But I believe it, you can't say that someone is deaf unless you've spoken to them and they've been unable to hear. Now, some of you have kids, and you think your kids are deaf. You might say that. My kids are just deaf. But you don't mean that because you know they actually do hear you. But the only reason you're even thinking that they act like a deaf person is because you've spoken to them many times, and they have acted like they were deaf. You've had an experience. So I believe David has tried what we would typically think of by talking to rulers, by using words, by having rational, reasonable debate on what is actually true and good. I believe this is what he's been trying to do. And so the, 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 the confrontation or the application for us today is that when we come across wicked, tyrannical rulers, our first response must be to proclaim the truth. We must fight with words. We must deal with wicked, lying rulers with the truth and warnings of Scripture. So it's a battle of ideas. It's a war of words. This is where we begin to fight for what is right and good and just even against wicked, tyrannical rulers. We must give the gospel faithfully and frequently. This is where we begin. In a culture where we have wicked tyrants, we have wicked rulers, we begin by dealing with what they're saying and what they're doing, the decrees, the words, the actions, the rulings. We deal with those with words from Scripture, and we speak the truth. We deal with the gospel. 
Because as we come down to verse 6, we see the word, O Lord. We see the prayer being given to Lord. All caps, Lord, is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the judge of all the earth. Jesus Christ is who's being spoken to specifically here, though the old covenant believer would not know his name. They would not know that the Messiah specifically, at least as clearly as we do today, they would not know that the Messiah would be the God-man, that Messiah would be Yahweh in the flesh, and that this Yahweh in the flesh, Christ, who will always be in the flesh, will be the one who rules and reigns on the earth, and the one who judges every person on the earth. So when we cry out for justice to the great judge of all the earth, who are we crying to? Jesus Christ. So when you think about Jesus Christ, and you think about Jesus Christ as loving, and he is kind, and he wears robes, and he speaks softly, and doesn't even carry a big stick. He's, he's quiet, he's meek, he's, he's, he's very tender, he's very forgiving, he's very kind. Many of those things are absolutely true, but we do not see him as he's fully revealed, even in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, with the idea that he's the just judge of all the earth, and when he returns, he will come riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, a sword of judgment on the wicked. You must see that. So when we see the judge who judges in this passage, this is Christ judging. Even in the old covenant, even though they wouldn't have known it, Christ is the judge that David is crying out to. Which means that we, as we preach the gospel, we warn wicked rulers and wicked tyrants that they will one day have to face the judge of all the earth, and that will be Jesus Christ, and he'll be seated on the throne, and they must answer ultimately to him. That's the prophetic warning of the scripture. And we preach the good news. We call them to repentance, to trust in Christ. Because that's our first response, always. Now, if that's where the psalm ended, then I would probably stop there. But what happens if they refuse to listen? And this is what has happened with Dave, in David's life. They are deaf. What if the people that we are speaking to are deaf to our words? What if they're deaf to words of charmers and enchanters? I want you to think, you th think this through practically. There are things being espoused. There are actions being promoted. There are things actually being done in our society that leave even humanist atheists gasping for words. That leave even the most liberal of people questioning the sanity of the people proclaiming those things. When things have gotten so bad in a society that people of all shapes and sizes and stripes and understandings are saying, this sounds insane, then maybe there's a real problem. But what happens to the people who are deaf is that they're not only deaf to the gospel, they're deaf to rationality and reasonableness from people who agree with them on other things. They're deaf to enchanters and charmers. They won't even listen to sanity just basic sanity, even with people they agree with on many other issues. They are deaf to all reason and all things. This is a terrible judgment, and this is a terrible judgment not only on the wicked tyrants, but on the people who they rule. Are you putting the pieces together in your own understanding of things? Think this through. They are deaf not only to the gospel and to David, they're deaf to charmers and enchanters, people they agree with. Now, as I read through this, I see some assumptions, some things that aren't mentioned there that I believe David is doing because David is a Christian and he loves Jesus Christ, though he didn't know him by that name. He loves Yahweh, he loved the Almighty God, and he loved the Messiah and looked forward to his coming. 
What this assumes, I believe, is it assumes that David, and therefore us, has been praying. When we confront people with the truth and warning of scriptures, we confront them with the gospel, I assume you're praying before you do that. Now, that's an assumption. We don't always do it. Therefore, that's why it's an assumption. This also assumes that we've been praying for their repentance, praying for them to turn from their wicked ways, praying for them to trust in Jesus Christ and be saved from the penalty of their past and any future wickedness. This is our starting point. We preach the gospel to everyone, including wicked tyrants. We call them to repentance because they will one day face the judge of all the earth and they will have to give an answer for all of their wickedness and everything they've done. And we call them to repent because we want them to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and be saved and be transformed and for our world to be transformed by more transformed people. That's what we want. That's our first starting place and we cannot forget it and move past it just because this person is a wicked tyrant. We pray and we preach And we do that faithfully because we wish that they, like us, would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because we were once wicked tyrants of our own kind. We were once speaking lies. We were once those who did what we wanted. We were estranged from the Lord from the womb. We went our own way, did we not? And Jesus Christ has come to us, forgiven us, given us new life and transformed us. Why would we not want that mercy and grace on others? This helps us understand what Jesus Christ is teaching in the New Testament about our attitude towards even someone we would call an enemy, even someone who would call us an enemy. We want their eternal good. And eternal good starts with repentance and leads to transformation. And that's what we want. That's where we start. And I believe David started here as well, even though it's not as clear as it is in the New Testament. They're deaf. So what happens when you come to the place where you proclaim the gospel You've been praying for their repentance, praying for their salvation. You've been telling the truth. You've been proclaiming the truth, and they still remain deaf to your words. Is praying for their repentance your only prayer? This is where most pastors, <laughs> even Reformed pastors and even evangelical pastors, would, a lot of them would say, yes, that's it. That's the end of it. That the rest of the teaching of this psalm is not for us today. And uh, I don't know how to say this. I say this in in kindness and love. I completely disagree with that. Is that strong enough? Or I totally reject that idea, though I might have also preached this at one time or thought that at one time. So I am sympathetic to people. So as you grow in your theology and grow in your understanding of the Scripture, always be sympathetic to people who held the belief you held yesterday. I love people. Don't you love this? Like, like, this happens a lot. You can think of all your examples you want. It's like idea, like, they, we hold firm to this idea, and then all of a sudden I change my mind, and now I can't believe all those idiots who hold that idea. And I just changed my mind yesterday. So when I change my mind on something, and then I'm over here now on this side of the issue, I look back at all those people who held what I've held for 25 years, and I just changed yesterday, what should I be with them? I should be patient and sympathetic and understand that was me. And when I just start calling everyone who held my former position all kinds of names like I just did, then I'm the the fool, and I'm not very Christ-like or loving in my approach. So I'm sympathetic on all kinds of theological issues because I've changed my position on a number of theological issues, 
And unfortunately, I wish I could say I'm never going to have to change another one the rest of my life. I'm right. I'm 100% in line. But the problem is I probably will change more as we go. And not because I think if I knew where I was wrong, I'd change today, but because I'm unaware. And if that's you or that's someone else you know, we need to be kind and, and patient and thoughtful. So the rest of this is what we can still pray in light of people who are deaf, in light of wicked tyrants who are deaf to the gospel, deaf to the truth, refusing to change their ways. We have another prayer. We start with the one prayer, prayer for the repentance, prayer for the gospel to take root. But if that doesn't happen, there comes a time when our prayers change, even for new covenant believers. And so in prayer, the prayer here is found in verses five through nine. It's the prayer of the righteous. So the righteous and the wicked are, 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 are contrasted here. The first thing that David prays, his prayer starts in verse 6. Now remember, I said there was an assumed prayer earlier, but here's the explicit prayer. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. I believe those four requests can be summarized this way. He asked God, David asked God to disable the ability of these wicked rulers to harm others. Lord, disable their ability to harm others. So if a lion doesn't have any teeth, how much can he hurt you? Okay, yeah, I know. See, as soon as I said it, I knew some of you thought, yeah, the lion has claws, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> All right, so I'll change the illustration, even though David used the word lions, but David is saying take away their ability by saying this. I would say, how afraid, of you are, how, how afraid are you of a pit bull with no teeth? You say, I'm still kind of afraid because it looked really scary. They're just going to gum you to death, right? I mean, that's the idea. When, when, when a, a, a vicious dog has no teeth, the viciousness is greatly reduced. Am I correct? And so this is the idea. Break their teeth, tear out their fangs. He goes on to say, may they vanish away like water. Like, can this, just take them away. Take their power away. And, if, and as they begin to shoot their arrows, I think one translation says break their arrows, snap their arrows in half, blunt their arrows. So may it just be like those target arrows. I mean, they, that might hurt a little bit, but it's not, a, it's not a deadly weapon. Now, if you get it in the eye, okay, I know. You guys, could, I know what you're doing out there. Stop doing it, okay? You're making me crazy. So the idea here is, it, so the idea is all their power is taken away. They're still in power, but as, even as they rule, they have no ability to bring that violent action against God's people, against David. That's one prayer. That's where he starts. So as we pray for wicked tyrants over us, we pray about wicked tyrants over other Christians and other nations. We pray that God would stop them from being able to enact their wicked agenda, bring their power to bear against Christians. I mean, just think of the book of Acts. They were trying to kill Christians. They were trying to stone Christians. They were trying to do all those things. And God sent angels to take them out of prison. God had them escape. God protected them. Even when they were stoned, they walked out alive. God does all kinds of amazing things to blunt the power and disable the power of the wicked. He can do it then, and he did it then, and he can do the same thing now. Trust in the Lord in these moments. And this is a prayer that we pray, disable the power. And this seems understandable and not too difficult to pray. Even many evangelicals would pray this. But after this, it gets rather dicey. He then asks, starting in verse seven, uh, verse eight, he asks God to end their lives. And he does so in very extreme poetic language that is somewhat disturbing. 
Have you ever seen a snail dissolve into slime? Do you get the picture? When a snail crawls, what, what does it leave behind? A trail of slime. It's kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, what happens if a snail gets caught out on a hot day on pavement? It leaves a trail of slime until it stops leaving a trail of slime because it has no slime left. It is crispy. Now, I lived this out in real life. I went to Bible college at Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa. And Ankeny, Iowa has, uh, at, at Bible college, we had these massive sidewalks, like eight-foot sidewalks from buildings and stuff like that. Uh, not a lot of buildings, but massive sidewalks. And what would happen is that when it rained in Iowa, I'm not sure why, but it, maybe, it happens in other places, but I only saw it mostly in Iowa, there on college campus. It would rain, and when it rained a lot, what would happen? These massive earthworms would be out. And for some reason, all these massive, yes, you see it, you know what's coming. The massive earthworms would end up all over the sidewalks. But somehow they could never get off the sidewalk. And what would happen when the sun came out? They would dry up. And you would be walking to class. I mean, literally, I mean, one time I think I counted like 50 or 60 worms. And one, I was like, this is, I just had to count. It's so amazing. It's so gross. That's the picture. And I don't know what you think about the poor uh, snail or the worm, but when their inability to move and they have no slime left, that's not David being kind to them and praying that. If you think that's bad, the next one is even worse. May they be like a stillborn child who never sees the sun. Well, they're already alive. What's he praying for? May their days be ended. He goes on and he says, sooner than your pots can feel the heat. May you sweep them away. May you take them out. Now, let me say this. He's asking them to vanish, to be swept away. Is he asking only that they be swept out of power or swept away into eternity? Swept out of power, taken out of office, in a sense, die, in, not die physically or literally, but, but die to the office and be removed. I do believe you could understand it that way. David is praying for their rule and authority to come to an end. In essence, sweep them out of power, take them out of office. And, and that, even though the strong language, it, it could be used that way, but I have a problem really with that interpretation and some of the strength of the illusions there. But if you look at verse 10, when the Christians, when the righteous person bathes his feet in the blood of the wicked, it's really hard to think that that's just metaphorically speaking about someone who just lost their office and not losing their life. You don't shed blood, enough blood to, to wash your feet in without dying. So I definitely believe that he asked God to end their lives, not just take them out of office. That's what I said about it getting dicey. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you really want to sing this psalm in church. Lord, may they be like a stillborn child. May we bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked. We're just not used to that language. We're not used to thinking about this ways, and we're definitely not used to singing that. <laughs> So, I mean, it's one thing to read it in church. It's still disturbing enough. But think about, let's, let's put that to music and just belt it out some Sunday. May we bathe our feet in the, in the blood of the wicked. It's, it's really tough for us. Now, what I want you to recognize as I, as I say that this is actually David praying for them in the life. Remember, this was not his first tactic. This was not his first prayer. He first spoke to them in words. He first prayed for the repentance. He first preached the truth. He first called them to those things. This is what happens when they remained hardened and deaf to those pleas and those cries. This is not his first action. It's his last resort. So whenever you have come to a place of last resort with a wicked tyrant, 
This is a prayer for you. Right now, you. I'm talking to you right here, 2022, right now in this place. So when proclamation of the gospel doesn't bear fruit and your enemies are physically seeking your harm, you may pray to God to make them powerless or remove them from power. That's kind of 1A or 2A. Second prayer, first part. And that's a great prayer. I prayed that this morning. Maybe you didn't catch it. I tried to pray some of these things and, and, and sweep them out of power, remove them from power. We pray for the wicked rulers of our nation to repent. We pray for that weekly. And then now we pray because we have an election. We pray for them to be removed from office. Those are ways we pray. This is us applying it. What I didn't do is pray the next part because I wasn't sure you were ready to hear it uh, without some background. <laughs> All right, so you pray for God to remove them. And if that prayer is not answered in the affirmative, you may pray for God to remove them from this earth and to do so now. If God does not um, break their power, remove them from power, you can pray for God to remove them from the earth, to take them into their eternal judgment. Now again, there are many who would say we should not pray that today. That is not a proper prayer for a Christian to pray. We'll talk about that more tonight. And I'll say it again, I completely 100 and whatever plus percent disagree. Partly because of what I see throughout the entire psalm, but also what comes next. The result of God's vengeful judgment. The result of God's vengeful judgment. In verses 10 and 11, we see what happens when God answers the prayer of David in the affirmative. And he does what David asks. And what is it called when God answers and says yes to what David prayed in eight, uh, 6 through 9? The righteous will rejoice when he sees what? The vengeance. When he sees the vengeance. If we're just asking God to remove people from power or to limit their ability to harm Christians, why would it be called vengeance and connected to bathing feet in blood? That's why I believe he's talking about ending their lives. And when the unjust, wicked tyrant is taken out of this world through death, what's the response of the righteous person? First of all, he understands that it is God's vengeance when that happens. It is vengeance. And this vengeance is connected in verse 11 to the God who judges on earth. There's a God, and he's judging right now, and he's judging on the earth. And when he judges, it is time to take the wicked tyrant out of rule, even if it means ending their life. When he does that, it is vengeance. It is God's vengeance on the wicked. And God brings vengeance on the wicked, not just in eternity, but he brings vengeance on the wicked sometimes, not all the time, sometimes now in this life. Now, I'll speak more about some of this tonight. The word vengeance and the fact that God takes vengeance and that Christ takes vengeance on real people, human people in this world is a New Testament concept. It's multiple times in the New Testament. If we come back tonight, we'll deal with those in, in specific. What's the result of that vengeful judgment? First of all, it's the worship of the righteous. The righteous person worships. When God acts in this way, God's people will rejoice we do not mourn the death of our wicked enemy. We rejoice in the death of our wicked enemy. Notice that the righteous person, notice that they are righteous and notice their behavior, they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. This is an allusion to the end of a battle where the victor's feet are covered by the blood of the conquered enemy because the blood of the conquered enemy covers the battlefield. I don't think it, it's not literally saying you're going to bend down and start washing your feet with the blood. It, that, 
I don't think that's what it's saying. It's saying that as you walk through a blood-covered field where blood even runs deep, your feet are being bathed in that blood because you stand victorious. And if you stand victorious, should you not rejoice? You know, when Michigan beats Michigan State here in a couple weeks, I'm not sure when it is. I know that, wait, most of you, now you're right back with me. All right. Ba football, not basketball. Uh, football. <laughs> football, yes, I, I'm with you. When Michigan beats Michigan State in a couple weeks, I will not find any of you Michigan fans mourning for your Michigan State friend. I will not see you feeling sad for them or bad for them. I will not see any of the football players leaving the field trying to find their defeated foe and, and pat them on the back and, and be nice to them. No. They will rub it in as much as possible. All you state fans know what the Michigan fans are like. You get it. They're the worst people in the world. They're terrible. And they will rub it in your face for years to come. Yes. I know how those people are. I've met a few. So, if that happens, why is there any grief over the one who has victorious over an enemy, why would we be? So notice how we've twisted that in many ways. And we'll talk again more about this tonight. But notice how this is scriptural and how it's the work of the righteous. And I want you to think about this from a real vantage point. After God drowned all the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, what do God's people do? Do they feel bad for the Egyptians? Do they mourn the Egyptians? Do they cry out to God about why he had to kill the Egyptians? No, if you want to read it, read it in Exodus 15. You can read what happened to him in Exodus 14, and you can see the, re the response of God's people. I'll give you a few verses. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Some of you have sung songs in church about the horse and the rider being thrown into the sea, and you didn't realize that you were rejoicing over the death of a bunch of Egyptians in the Old Testament. That's what they're rejoicing in. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast in the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. And this is a worship song. And they even played the tambourines and the women danced around. And all the charismatics said, hallelujah, preacher brother. Bring it on. You know, whatever it is. I mean, tambourines, dancing, and singing. I mean, this is like the, <laughs> the, the charismatic service breaks out. We have the, uh, what do they call that, interpretive dancers and the tambourines. And we're all singing about, <laughs> we're all singing about how people are, are dead. Do you see the disconnect, how you have read this? You've heard the story as a child. You understand this truth. And you have never once thought that the Israelites were wrong for worshiping and celebrating God's victory. You were probably never taught that this was a wrong response and that they should have mourned the death of the wicked instead of re rejoicing over the death of their enemies. But somehow we twisted it, and in today's society, in light of the New Testament, somehow we think we should respond differently. Do you guys see that spider? I triumphed gloriously over that spider, and I will not mourn. I will not mourn. <laughs> and if it was a poisonous snake, and I ended its life, would you mourn? And if these wicked tyrants are like poisonous snakes, should we mourn? I mean, this is hardcore. This is why I don't have time to deal with everything, because it brings up a ton of questions. It should. You should be wrestling with this. You should really be thinking through the application of this. Let me give you some words of wisdom from men much more righteous than me and much wiser than me, men I respect, 
Should we act like this? Should we rejoice in the death of the wicked enemy? John Calvin says this, In this case, there is nothing absurd in supposing that believers under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit should rejoice in witnessing the execution of divine judgments. There's nothing absurd, absurd in supposing that believers will rejoice in witnessing the execution of divine judgment. Why would we mourn God's divine judgment? Why wouldn't we rejoice if we love the Lord? Why wouldn't we rejoice in his divine judgment? That's what John Calvin said. Matthew Henry said, The joy of the saints in the destruction of the wicked is then a holy joy and justifiable. He connects it to this when it helps to make them holy and to purify them from sin. But in a broader context, he says that this is a holy joy, a justifiable joy in understanding who God is and what he does. Charles Spurgeon says, He shall rejoice to see justice triumphant. The damnation of sinners shall not mar the happiness of saints. Why would the damnation of sinners mar the happiness of saints? Because we have a misunderstanding of the Scripture, a misapplication of the Scripture. Now, I want to give you a distinction here. One distinction here, there's many distinctions, but one I'll share here is, this is there's a distinction between a personal enemy and a corporate enemy. That's one answer to what Christ taught. There's a difference between my neighbor is an angry man who causes me all kinds of problems, and he's acting like I'm his enemy, and I pray for God to take him out of this world. That's one thing. That's different than there's an enemy of God who hates God's people, seeks to destroy God's people. He's a corporate enemy. He's a congregational enemy, and we pray for his death or destruction. There's a difference there. There's an applicational difference and a way we act that is different there. And we need to understand that. That's one distinction. We have to work out a lot of details on that, but there's some things there. There's a difference between an enemy who hates us because of our allegiance to God and an enemy who hates us for other reasons. Sometimes the distinction becomes not much of a distinction. I mean, if my neighbor decides to try to kill me because he doesn't like my chickens making too much noise, it doesn't matter if he's killing me because he hates God or because he just hates my chickens. I mean, there is that. But there are some distinctions when it comes to the idea of vengeance. When you see this as God's vengeance, then you realize why David is praying for this to happen and not taking it into his own hands. Do you see that distinction? Why doesn't David just pull his own sword? I mean, he's got 400 guys with him, or 600, what, 800? I forget how many. He's got a bunch of mighty men with him. He's fighting Saul. He's running around. He's fighting Philistines. He's doing all kinds of things. He's killing all kinds of people. Why won't he kill these mighty lords? Because in this case, the vengeance is God's in this case, and he prays for God to take vengeance in his time and in his way, just like he prayed for God to take vengeance on King Saul and didn't take King Saul's life himself. We have to understand the dis distinctions and the differences, which is why we pray for this. We don't just make it happen. Now, we rejoice because this deliverance is for our good. The Israelites rejoiced because if the Egyptians weren't drowned, what would the Egyptians have done to them? Re-enslaved them at best, killed them at worst, so they realized this is a real life and death situation. Why wouldn't we rejoice? We would certainly rejoice for our own good, our own benefit. That's why when God takes wicked rulers out of powers of position and authority, we rejoice. When he ends their life because they won't repent or, or aren't voted out, we rejoice. We rejoice in the wickedness, being divine justice being executed on the wicked, even in this life. But let me say this, as I, I gave you the examples, I'll use some stuff from tonight. I gave some examples like, David didn't king, kill King Saul, nor did he kill these men. And
So the Bible is going to give us both pictures. So we say, well, Christians would never participate in an assassination of a wicked tyrant. Have you ever met a man or heard of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Who was executed because of his participation in an assassination attempt on Hitler. Some Christians would say Bonhoeffer was wrong for seeking to kill this wicked tyrant. Now, if I say wicked tyrant in light of Hitler, you might think I'm being kind in my description. But some Christians actually believe that he was wrong for seeking the death of that man. I don't know. I, I have an answer. I don't know. I'm just saying, I don't want to get in too deep into this. But Ehud assassinated a wicked man, and he was a judge of Israel. We just have to think through all of Scripture. Okay, second thing here, the second response. There's the rejoicing of the, of the righteous, and there's the witness to all mankind. When God takes someone out, the witness of all mankind. Mankind, verse 11, will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. God's vengeful judgment on the enemies of his people are a testimony that there's a just God who is the judge, and he's the judge on the earth right now. And his judgment is not only in eternity, but there are many times when he brings judgment now. God will bring some temporal judgments, but he will definitely bring all judgment eternally, which is why my call to you, if you're not a Christian, is to repent and repent today, repent right now, because the judge of all the earth will bring his judgment in, in this life, but definitely in the next life. And so repent today, because you will one day, like these wicked tyrants, stand before the judge of all the earth. And if you're not a believer, you'll be cast into the eternal lake of fire forever. For judgment forever, eternal judgment, repent. The good news is for you today, repent and be saved. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is your only hope. We plead with you. And this is a witness. When God does this, unbelievers will see what happens to wicked tyrants, and they will be caused to say, there's a God, and he's just, and he cares for his people. That's it. David struggled with wicked tyrants and wicked people throughout the Psalms because the longer they were in power and the longer they were successful, it looked like there was no God, there was no just judge, there was no justice on the earth. He thought that would happen and he complains about that in other Psalms. But here he rejoices when it's brought about. Notice the complaint and the rejoicing, how those things work together. And so when these things work together, we say that unbelievers will realize there's a great God when God brings mighty judgment on the mighty, the mighty wicked. And we pray for that. It's a witness to all mankind. And then this witness is that says, surely there's a God who judges, judges on earth, which means the last result is the glory of the almighty judge. God does everything for his glory. Everything. Even his vengeful judgment in this life on the enemies of his people for their good and for his glory. God will take people out. He will end their life. He will take them into eternal judgment for his glory. And if this glorifies God and the righteous should rejoice, why would we say it's bad or wrong? Why would we not pray for it to happen? And why would we not rejoice when it does if this glorifies the almighty judge? And it does. In conclusion, I've already said this, but I'll say it again here. If you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever, hear the warnings of scripture and the proclamation of the gospel and repent while you still have time while you're breathing, while you're living, while you're hearing, if God has been gracious to you to hear this message and to hear the truth, today's the day of repentance. Do it now. Because God's judgment will come someday. Now, this doesn't mean you're an enemy of God's people. It doesn't mean you're out to get us. It doesn't mean we're, we're praying for God to take you out. 
But there is a fearful judgment that awaits all rebel sinners as God's enemies, if not ours. Christians, what should we do? Pray for God to save and transform your enemies. But if not, if he, if he chooses not to do that, to pray for vengeful judgment quickly upon them. There's two parts to that. I talked about that already. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for the salvation of your enemies. But if God chooses not to grant them repentance, pray for God's vengeful judgment to come quickly. And, and here's, here's an application of that. Wicked tyrants are not just a problem for God's people. Wicked tyrants are a problem for every person under their rule. As long as wicked tyrants who promote, who promote the destruction of babies in the womb, as long as they are allowed to rule and to reign and have power, it will be the death and destruction of believers and unbelievers alike. They do not discriminate. And so for the good of unbelievers, may these people be taken out. It's not just Christians who pay the price. So if you love your little unborn neighbor, vote no on Proposal 3 and pray for God to remove the wicked. And if he does not remove them from office through a vote, end their life quickly. To save the lives of those. I think God agrees. <laughs> I, and I don't want to get, I, I talked about this last week. I don't even have this in my notes. That's the application for us today. We must see it. Blood has been poured out on the ground of Michigan in the lives of 1.5 million dead babies. How deep is the blood? Would not the blood of the wicked satisfy God? And would we not rejoice as we bathe their, our feet in their blood? I mean, can you, can you imagine saying that like I just did? It's not easy stuff. It's the truth. And then lastly, rejoice in God's just judgment. Rejoice in God's just judgment. God's judgment is always just. And we will rejoice now as he brings some of that judgment now, but we will rejoice for all of eternity as he judges the wicked eternally. We will rejoice. We will not have our joy in eternity marred by our grief and mourning over the death of the wicked. Now, let me make that clear to you. Some of you have unsaved relatives who have already passed away. And you grieve the fact that as far as you know, they went into eternity unsaved. In this life, you do grieve that. You do mourn that. In the life to come, it will not cause you one moment, not one tiny nanosecond of grief or mourning. You will not be concerned about their just judgment at all in, in the next life. Because you will recognize that God's judgment was just and that they deserved it and you won't have those struggles you have now. Hard to imagine the truth is there. Our happiness will not be marred by our grief and mourning over God's just judgment on the wicked. We must know it. We must believe it. Father, there's so much application here. Lord, just take the truth and help us to understand it and apply it. Lord, work in us. May we be people of prayer. May we be people that proclaim the gospel. Lord, some of us struggle with hating our enemies. We struggle with not wanting to preach the gospel. We struggle with wanting them uh, to be in hell more than we want them to be saved. Lord, we struggle. So I pray that we would love our enemies, preach the truth, but we would love your justice and your judgment and your righteousness and the lives of those around us more so. And we trust your sovereignty and your goodness in all these ways. May we be people who rejoice in all that you do and all your goodness, even your just judgment. Help us as we sing now in closing in Jesus' name. Amen.